Grab your Bible and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we continue our study in the book of Lamentations. And I've entitled this morning's message, God's Wrath on a Society. See, in chapter 1, we learned about the fall of Jerusalem, and we saw the fall of Jerusalem primarily from the perspective of man's sin. If we were to summarize all of Lamentations chapter 1, we could do so by simply saying, sin is devastating. Both on your life and the circumstances of your life and on your soul, sin will wreak havoc in your life. As we turn our attention this morning to chapter 2, we're going to see many of the same events explained and described in the fall of Jerusalem, except in chapter 2, we see the fall of Jerusalem from God's perspective. Specifically, Lamentations chapter 2 presents the fall of Jerusalem from the perspective of God's wrath. Look with me at Lamentations chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered His footstool in the day of His anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath, He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of a festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. 
The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. These ten verses, we're beginning to see the destruction of Jerusalem specifically from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, the destruction of Jerusalem was a demonstration of His holy wrath. In fact, one commentator put it this way, There's hardly any other place in the Old Testament with so much concentration on the wrath of God. That's what's going on here. God poured out His wrath on these people. And by the way, when God poured out His wrath on the people of Jerusalem, He intended for it to be a preview of His final wrath at His final coming. In fact, if you notice, verse 1 ends with the phrase, in the day of His anger. And then if you go all the way to verse 22 and look, it says, on the day of the anger of the Lord. What is this? This is a preview of the great and awful day of the Lord. That final day of the Lord when He will come back to judge all nations. What we have in Lamentations chapter 2 is a preview of coming events. And by the way, not only is it a preview of coming events in the end times when Christ returns, it's also a preview of what God does when He judges a society. You see, it's clear from Scripture that God collectively judges people, groups, and nations for their collective sins against His holy character. We see this time and time again. Some might say, well, this is Israel. Israel was in covenant with God. Israel had particular covenant stipulations that they had to live by. So really, yeah, this happened to Israel, but this doesn't apply to a nation like ours because we don't have a special covenant with God. Well, it's true that the specifics of our situation are different than Israel, but if you scour the Scriptures, what you'll find is that God pours out His judgment on societies beyond Israel all the time in the Scriptures. The Babylonians, who God used to judge Israel, guess what? God also promised that for their wickedness, He was going to judge them. He sent a prophet to the Ninevites to warn them of coming judgment. This is how God works. God will judge societies. He will judge nations. He will judge people groups for their collective sin against His holy character. You say, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just deal with me individually? Why would God pour out His wrath on an entire society? Well, the answer to that could be quite lengthy, but I think we can synthesize it down to two gracious purposes that God has in judging a society. One, God will judge a society as a warning to individual sinners. In other words, when you as an individual sinner examine God's wrath against Israel, against Jerusalem, you can look at that and say, that is a preview of what will happen to me if I don't turn and believe in Christ Jesus. It's a gracious warning. He pours out previews and small doses of His wrath to warn us and to push us back to Christ before the ultimate outpouring of wrath comes. 
And so he does so as a gracious warning to individual sinners. He also pours out his wrath against society in order to protect individuals. God will pour out his wrath on a society, on a nation, on a people group in order to put a stop to dangerous and deadly collective sins. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let me give you two quick examples. Remember what happened in the flood? What did God do? God poured out his wrath. Now, he's never going to do it in that way again, never in a worldwide fashion. But what did God do? He poured out a small dose of his wrath on the earth in order to put an end to the collective rebellion of mankind. He said, that's enough of that. He put a stop to it. Or how about, you want another example, how about at the Tower of Babel? What happened there? God poured out a small dose of his judgment to confuse the language. Why? Because collectively their sins were compounding. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. God will judge a society to warn individuals to repent and to protect against what we might call collective corruption. And as we think through these things, we need to recognize that a society or a nation cannot continually reject the authority of God and expect to receive the blessing of God. No nation can turn their backs on the law of God and expect to receive the blessing of God. And I don't have to remind you of this, but this is a sad reality for us because as we read Lamentations chapter 2, we're reminded of the condition of our own society, of our own nation. In fact, I'm reminded of these words that Pastor John MacArthur wrote. Um, he actually delivered it in a sermon soon after the events of 9-11, which I don't need to remind you of. But in the month or so after those events, listen to what Pastor MacArthur said. He writes, Originally, God bless America was a prayer for divine blessing." In its current form, it sometimes seems nothing more than a patriotic battle cry, usually intoned without much serious reflection. Perhaps it is sometimes recited with the superstitious belief that merely invoking God's name can garner His blessing. But one thing is clear. While Americans universally want God's favor... As a whole, they do not want God. And despite the fact that you can watch ball game on TV and hear them sing God Bless America after the seventh inning stretch, despite every politician ever, it seems like ending with, and may God bless America. More and more, our society and our culture has run away from the blessings of God. In fact, I think it's a pretty much a no-brainer to say that our society resembles the rebellious Jerusalem of Lamentations chapter 2 a lot more than the regenerate new Jerusalem of Revelation 21. And by rejecting the truth of God, our society has forfeited our claim to divine blessing 
through our cultural apostasy. The further and further we move away from God's law, the further and further we move away from God's truth, the further and further we move away from God's holy character, the further we move away from His hand of blessing. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 stands as a warning to any society, any nation, any group of people that think that they can reject the truth of God and avoid the wrath of God. Specifically, these verses warn us of two features of God's wrath against a society that rejects His truth. There are two features of God's wrath poured out here that I want you to take notice of. And we see the first feature of God's wrath in verses 1 through 4. Here we learn about the nature of God's wrath. The nature of God's wrath. If you're here today and you think in some way that it's possible to withstand God's wrath. If you're the kind of person that just kind of always figures out some way to skate by, you know, you got to, you got to, you got a flight, and instead of getting there two hours ahead of time, you leave home like 45 minutes ahead of time, and sometime, somehow you get on the plane still. If that's you, if somehow you always avoid the speeding ticket, or you always avoid the consequences or whatever, and you think, I'm just going to skate by on this the way I've skated by the rest of life. These verses will cure you of that pride. If you think, well, the wrath of God can't be that bad. I mean, how many times... Do we, do we see unbelievers lampooning hell as if it's a giant tailgating party with all their buddies? If you have a deficient view of God's wrath, these verses will open your eyes to the ferocious nature of it. Or maybe you're here and you have a view of God that thinks that He would never be angry with anyone. How could God be angry? If you have such a small view of God and you've diminished His holiness and righteousness to the point where He can't be outraged over sin, these verses are going to help you adjust your theology. Because in these verses, we see something of the nature of God's wrath, particularly God's wrath towards a society. And, and what we see is that the nature of God's wrath against a society in, it includes God's complete rejection of that society. Complete rejection. You see, we understand that sin separates us from God, but sometimes we like to say it in such a way that puts us in the driver's seat. Yes, my sin separates me from God, so if I just do something about my sin, then I'll be able to come back to God on my own terms. But what we forget is, yes, sin separates us from God, but at the same time, God separates Himself from sinners. When God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, He was rejecting them for their rebellion. And in a manner similar to how God rejects individual unrepentant sinners, God also will reject entire societies that rebel against Him. And and verse 1 confronts us with the fact that when God does this, when God rejects a rebellious society, He does so in His righteous anger. Verse 1 says, How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. 
Here, here the, the anger of the Lord is described as a cloud that descends upon and envelops the city of Jerusalem. It's all-encompassing. Of course, the cloud here, it represents the presence of God, which for those who are trusting Him, for those who are obeying Him, the presence of God is a comforting theological reality, isn't it? Think even of the, the pillar and the cloud that, 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 that led the people through the wilderness. It was a reassuring sign that God made His presence known to His people. But now all that's changed, hasn't it? The people aren't trusting Him and following Him. The people are, are, are rejecting Him and rebelling against Him. And so the cloud that in the wilderness was reassuring is now terrorizing the people. It says that He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Jerusalem. In this term, cast down, it signifies a break in the relationship between God and His people. In fact, what's interesting, we don't have time to go there this morning, but if you go to Isaiah 14 and other places, you'll see that when God judges the Gentile nations, it speaks of God casting them down. God allows them to rise to a certain level of prominence, to be used in, in His providential hand over history, but eventually their sin reaches a point where He casts them down. Now the very thing that God has done to the rebellious Gentile nations, He's done to His own people, Israel. Specifically, it says that He's cast down the splendor of Israel. From a human perspective, that's their prominence, their blessing. From God's perspective, it's all the covenant benefits that they enjoyed. He's cast those things down. In fact, it says... He has not remembered his footstool. This is stunning. Think with me about all your times reading through the Old Testament narrative. How many times do we read, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham? And God remembered his covenant. And God remembered his people. And God remembered David. And God remembered them in their affliction. That's covenant language. He remembers his covenant people. But now, what do we read here? He has not remembered. The covenant language is Reversed. God has cut off the people from the covenant privileges. Specifically, it says that He has not remembered His footstool. And here the footstool signifies the temple which was removed from Jerusalem. And so the temple, signifying God's special presence with His people, was removed and in its place came a cloud signifying God's righteous anger. One commentator put it this way. From this verse, it's clear. God's current disposition towards the city is anger. And that anger was righteous, and that anger was holy, and that anger was justified. The people broke the covenant of God, and now they were experiencing the curses of the covenant. 
And verse 2 continues to heighten the impact of God's rejection by making it clear that, that this punishment, that this rejection would not only be in righteous anger, but it would be without mercy. You see, in the past, Israel received discipline, but discipline with mercy. But this time, there was no moderation in the punishment. Verse 2 says, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. The habitations here, it's a word elsewhere translated uh, pasture lands. Actually, it's a word that we find in Psalm 23. What does the shepherd do? He, he, he leaves them beside the still waters. He finds them habitations or pasture lands where they can feed in, right? But now we see in this verse that the shepherd has turned on his rebellious sheep and destroyed the pasture lands. The pasture lands, which most likely represents uh, economic prosperity, gone. Gone. Additionally, it says, in his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds or the walls of the daughter of Judah. The pasture lands, the economic prosperity of the culture, wiped away, swallowed up, completely gone. The strongholds, the defense, the security of this nation, completely gone, swallowed up. It says he has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He brought it to the ground. This tells us something of the extent of God's wrath, doesn't it? They could not stand up under the wrath of God. It brought them down, and it brought them down to dishonor. When God called Israel, He said, You are to be a holy people, a holy nation, because I am a holy God. He sanctified them and set them apart. Now He has punished them in dishonor. No longer set apart. No longer sanctified. And all of this is done, according to verse 2, in His wrath. That is, as one commentator put it, the intense displeasure of God before which nothing can stand. That's what God's wrath is. Here's what's going on. God punished His people without mercy, which means God punished Jerusalem to the point where it was impossible for them to function as His covenant people any longer. He completely rejected them with righteous anger and without mercy, which is the nature of what God's wrath is. It's the holy, righteous, justified, and intense displeasure of God marked by His righteous anger and without mercy. And, and notice that in addition to, to rejecting the people in this way, that the nature of God's wrath against Jerusalem, it was not only rejection, but it was opposition. God actively opposed them, which by the way is what any society can expect when they rebel against God. The Lord of hosts will only endure an insurrection for so long before He takes action. Which is what He did in Jerusalem. 
And as we look at verse 3, verse 3 indicates that God's opposition against a society, it begins with the removal of his protection over them. If God's going to oppose a society, then the first thing he's going to do is he's going to stop protecting them. You understand, no nation defends itself. That's why the psalmist mocks those who trust in chariots and horses, or for us, tanks and ballistic missiles. That's ridiculous. Why would it be ridiculous? It seems natural for me to say, I'm glad my country has bigger tanks than them. Why is that ridiculous? Well, the theological truth behind that is no nation defends itself. It depends upon the protective hand of God for its security. We depend upon the providential kindness of God to secure our people. And if God removes his protective hand from a society, then there is no security force in the world that can protect that society. Israel learned that. It says in verse 3, He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. The might of Israel was no match for the fierce anger and wrath of the Lord. He cut down their might. In fact, literally, the word translated here, might, it's the Hebrew word for horn. The horn represents the might, the strength, the, the, the ability to defend yourself. See, why would God cut the horn off of Jerusalem? Well, in Psalm 75, verse 10, it says, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Had Jerusalem submitted to the Lord, what would have happened? Their strength would have been sustained. But when they chose to disbelieve and disobey the Lord, it led to a wickedness that led to their horn being cut off. And notice it says, He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. This is pretty vivid language, isn't it? The hand that previously protected Israel has now been removed. Remember when the Assyrians wrapped themselves around the city of Jerusalem and were threatening the people and the king is praying, Lord, deliver us. And remember when God struck them down. Thousands defeated Israel didn't lift a finger for that. It was the protective and providential hand of the Lord that safeguarded the city. Now, verse 3 says, that hand, it is gone. And notice the moment when he pulled his hand back. In the face of the enemy. In other words, the Babylonians were staring right down the barrel at Jerusalem. And it was in that moment that God removed his protective hand from them. And as a result, it says he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. In other words, without the protective hand of God, the Babylonians consumed the city of Jerusalem like a wildfire. When God removes his hand of protection from a nation, from a city, from anything, there is nothing in the world that can protect it. And, and, and notice that when God opposes a people, 
He doesn't just remove his hand of protection, but verse 4 intensifies God's opposition of Israel by making it clear that he was actively hostile towards them. It wasn't just that God said, I'm not protecting you this time, I'm just going to let it play out. No, verse 4 says, he has bent his bow like an enemy. The right hand of God that was protecting Israel has now been removed and is employed in attacking the city. By the way, God warned of this. Jeremiah chapter 21, verses 5 and 6, God warns the people with these words. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in the anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. God didn't just stop protecting the city. He was active against the city. God became like the enemy against Judah And by the way, he used Babylon as his instrument. It says with vivid language that the Lord had his bow drawn. What was his bow? His bow was the Babylonians. Which, by the way, that's a warning for us, isn't it? We say, well, we might be bad, but look at them. God won't use them to judge us because they're worse than us. Were the Babylonians worse than Israel? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't have the divine scales available to me to measure it all out, but I know the Babylonians were pretty bad. They were judged themselves, but not before God used them as his weapon of punishment against Israel. It says, He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. See, as this verse indicates, no one can come against God in battle and survive. By the way, just to come up for air for a second, isn't this reality, as hard as it is for us to grasp and as hard as it is for us to accept, isn't this reality part of what makes the gospel so glorious? When when we as sinners disobeyed the Lord, when we rebelled against Him, this is the very wrath that we deserve. From Adam down, we declared war against the Almighty God. And yet, despite our declarations of war and rebellion, God chose to set apart for Himself a people and to save His people by His grace. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What do we deserve? Annihilation. What do we receive? Reconciliation. 
delivered from the fury of God's wrath. Now this is true for us as individual believers, but it wasn't true for Israel as a society. Collectively, as a nation, they had to endure the wrath of God. But, but before we move on from the nature of this wrath, I do want you to notice something in verse 4. Notice it says, he has bent his bow like an enemy. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that word like there just give some hope to the people of God? Again, with his right hand set like a foe. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. Isn't it interesting that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet didn't write, God became your enemy. He said he became like an enemy. What's going on here? Well, the Lord is leaving hope open for the future restoration of his people. In fact, we know from Revelation elsewhere in Scripture that God will, in fact, save and restore Israel. This is a promise that will be fulfilled through Christ as Israel looks on the one whom they have pierced. So even as we recognize that as a biblical reality, when we think through the implications of that for our own situation, we do need to be careful though, don't we? You see, this is not a promise that any other society in the history of the world can bank on in the midst of judgment. God, when he judged the Babylonians, didn't say, I'm going to become like your enemy. He said, I am your enemy. You're done. Yes, individually, we have security in Christ through our faith in Christ. But our society, our nation corporately, possesses no promises from God And this is a sobering reality in light of the second feature of God's wrath that we find in this passage. You see, as we move on to verses 5 through 10, we learn about the extent of God's wrath. So we learn something of the nature of God's wrath. It includes His rejection and opposition. But now in these verses, we learn something of the extent of God's wrath. You see, these verses really kind of summarize what we've already seen with regard to what happened to Jerusalem. But these verses focus on one particular aspect of Jerusalem's fall. It focuses on the way God destroyed the societal institutions of Jerusalem, of Israel. You see, a nation, a society will only flourish when certain institutions are strong and protected. This is a part of God's common grace, by the way. One of those institutions is the family. When a culture values the family and understands the the role of a husband and wife and, and the importance of raising a child and what that looks like, well, that, that's a common grace to a society. At the same time, uh, a righteous government that, what's the role of government? According to Romans 13, a government that protects those who do what is right from those who do what is wrong, punishing them, that's, that's what a righteous government looks like. When you have a government like that, that is a common grace to a society. Additionally, we could add that when there is a strong influence from the church, 
from God's people on that society, even if the whole society is not saved, to have the church, the, the people of God, to be a societal conscience for those people, those are all common graces. They're all institutions that God uses to hold a society together. But here's the thing. When God judges a society, when God judges a nation, those are the first three things to crumble. Right view of the family, right view of the government, and the influence of the church. And these verses show something of how God did that very thing when He destroyed Jerusalem. See, in verse 5, God begins functioning as Israel's enemy by dismantling the cultural institutions of Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. And this signifies the comprehensive nature. It, it consumed everything. And, and notice where it started. He has swallowed up all its palaces. All its palaces. If this were singular, it would be referring primarily to the centralized government of Israel. But the fact that it's plural, I think it's talking about all the main cultural centers, all the, the, the movers and shakers, so to speak. This would be like saying, you know, the first thing to go was uh, uh, Hollywood and Broadway and then D.C. Wait a minute, that is the first thing that went, wasn't it? Major sinners that, that made their culture what it was. God completely turned it upside down. Additionally, it says that he, he has laid in ruins its strongholds. These strongholds, that, that would have been a, a kind of a rallying point along the wall around the city, a place of defense. And, and, and the way it's used here. The people would look to the stronghold and say, man, we built this stronghold. Nobody can come against that. It was kind of a, a, a symbol of power in Jerusalem. You want to know what these strongholds were like? In our own culture, it would be like saying that he laid to ruins the Liberty Bell. He laid to ruins the Statue of Liberty. He laid to ruins the American flag. He just swallowed it up. Used to, people looked at that. And said, that is our power, that is our strength. As long as we've got this, then we will be safe. God swallowed it up and he laid it into ruins. And notice, as we keep reading, it says that he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentations. And I think what you see here going on is that the impact of God's wrath trickles all the way down even to the individual families of Jerusalem. In other words, the cultural institutions that should have been a common grace, especially the family, to protect the society, God consumed them by His wrath. God, God judged these institutions. He let them go into their sin and ultimate destruction. They should have been the backbone of society. But instead, they were perverted, and so God judged them. That's what God does. Sound familiar? Notice also in verses 6 and 7 that God keeps going and stunningly dismantles the religious institutions that were the center of Israel's worship. 
It says in verse 6, He has laid waste his booth like a garden. His booth here is talking about the temple. God destroyed the temple. And, and when it says like a garden, it, it means like a booth in the garden. In other words, the, the majestic temple of Solomon God knocked it down like it was a little shack out back. I remember hurricanes were all in the news. I grew up in Florida, so hurricanes, that's my childhood. You know, at the end of every summer, that's what we did. And I remember one particular hurricane came through town, and my grandfather had uh, a, a metal shed out in the back of his property, probably four acres or something like that, just sitting on a concrete slab. Well, we came out after this one particular hurricane and that metal sh shed that was on the back of the property was blown and all the way upside down at the front of the property by the road. That's what God did to the temple. Blew it around like it was nothing. It says that he has laid in ruins his meeting place. If God destroys the place where he meets with his people, what is he saying? I'm not meeting with you anymore. I'm not meeting with you. It says he, he caused the people to forget the festival and the Sabbath. In other words, God removed the special days of worship. In his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The individuals who were supposed to lead the people into that special worship, he removed them as well. It says, furthermore, in verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar. What did they do on the altar? Sacrifice. Sacrifices were a way of dealing with what? Sin. What's God saying? That's gone. It's gone. God removed the sacrificial system and any hope from a human perspective that they might have had for atoning for their own sins. He disowned his sanctuary, it says. By the way, God gave the temple in the hand of the Babylonians who not only destroyed it, but they desecrated it. As one commentator put it, this verse, or these verses, 6 and 7, unfold the dissolving of the system whereby Israel could relate to its God. Because of its lack of holiness, God destroyed all of Jerusalem's holy institutions. They were using all these holy institutions, by the way, hypocritically. Pursuing their lust, pursuing their sin, pursuing their idols, and then going to the temple. Oh, but we've got the temple. We're safe. Much like our own society. Much like our own society that pursues its own lust, pursues its own desires, pursues sins of all kinds of wicked machinations, and then sings at the ball game. God bless America. We're covered, right? We're covered, right? Look, feigned religiosity and self-righteous acts of external worship cannot stave off the wrath of God. That's the lesson they had to learn in Jerusalem. God judged the religious institutions that should have been a blessing, that should have been a conscience for the people, but it had become totally defiled. And so God judged it. And notice in verses 8 through 10 that 
that God continues from these cultural and family institutions to the religious institutions. And and in verses 8 through 10, God removes the political institutions that made Israel a distinct national entity. Verse 8 says, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. And by the way, that word there, determined, That signifies that this was not a capricious fit of rage on the part of God. God thought through it. He planned it all out. This was predetermined by His righteous and holy will. In fact, in Jeremiah 18, 11, God warned the people of this very thing. I have determined that if you do not repent, I'm going to do this against you. Repent! But because they did not heed His warning, God ruined the wall. What's the wall? The wall represented their national independence. It represented their national autonomy. What did God do with it? God stretched out the measuring line. In other words, God is measuring out His wrath to Israel. God measured the city of Jerusalem for judgment like a tailor would measure you for a new suit, guys. says he did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. The rampart was the outer wall. The, the wall speaks of the inner wall. The fortifications, both gone. Total lack of strength. They languished together. There was no strength. It was a total destruction of the city's infrastructure. Total destruction of the city's entity as a nation. The political destruction of Israel, it was planned, it was intentional, and it was effective in the hands of God. Verse 9 says, the gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. The gates and bars were to protect the people. Her kings and princes are among the nations. They're carried off into captivity. Says the law is no more. Does this mean the law of God ceased? No. I know that can't be the fact because all grass, all men are like grass. Flowers, withers, fades away, right? But the word of the Lord, how long does it stand for? It stands forever. It stands forever. So did the law of God cease to exist and cease to be true? No. God took it away from Israel is what he means here. The sanctifying influence and the common grace of even having God's law um, in their midst. God took it away. They ignored his law for so long that he said, now you can go live in captivity under the laws of another people. The law that was supposed to be a means of grace, God took it away. Additionally, it says, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. In other words, God cut them off from previous revelation and discontinued any new revelation. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. The elders, that was kind of like our judicial branch. The elders would sit at the gates and rule over cases on according to the law. Now they're not sitting at the gates ruling. They're sitting in the dust mourning. 
They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. It's over. Every marker of national identity, every form of political leadership, all of these things that God gave to the people as a common grace, He has now taken away from them because they perverted it and used it for sin. Now, again, as we read from the rest of Scripture, this was not the end for Israel, but it certainly was the end for every Jew living in that generation. They went into an exile at that point, an exile that in some form or fashion is still going on today. And it will go on until Christ comes back to redeem and restore them. Here's what's going on. This is the complete dismantling of an entire society as a punishment for their rebellion. That's what God's doing. In the wrath of God, He put an end to all the common grace that was enjoyed by the nation of Israel. If God did that to Israel, His chosen people, he will certainly do it to any society or any nation that rejects him. He will systematically remove all the common graces that he so kindly has given to them. Again, this isn't just for Israel. These particular circumstances certainly are just for Israel. But in Isaiah 13, we read that after God's done using Babylon to punish Israel, God's then going to punish Babylon. In a similar way. See, God collectively judges people groups, nations, and societies for their collective sins against His holy character. That's heavy truth, isn't it? Especially when you look at what's going on in the world today. But I think part of what we need to do is look around and instead of saying God is going to judge our society, what we need to recognize is that God is presently judging our society. Why, why is the family as a societal institution crumbling? Is common grace given by God misused, rebelled against? God's handing our culture over to their sins. Say, man, seems like there was a point in which, in our history's nation, in which our government and politicians could actually come together and get things done. Why is it that that doesn't happen anymore? God's judging us. There was a time when the church functioned as a sort of conscience for our nation, when it mattered what the church said on an issue, issues of truth and morality. Even if, there weren't, even, even if people weren't Christians, they understood, ah, you know, that's important. Now there's very little of that left over. Very little of that left over. I recently did a funeral. I talked to the funeral director and he said, boy, used to everybody had a pastor to do. Now nobody has a pastor. And more and more, the question I'm getting is, why do we need a pastor? Why do we need clergy to do a funeral? Can't you or just anybody do it? The sense of the need for God's people to speak in society, it's just gone. And not only is it gone, by the way, it's opposed. What's going on? God's removing the common graces that have been misused. 
You say, well, what does that mean? What do we, what do, we do? Well, next week we're going to get into that. And we're going to see the, the response of the faithful to God's judgment on a society. But, but just so I don't leave you hanging too much, we might ask the question, what does all this mean for our nation? Well, it means this. We cannot presume upon the grace of God while pursuing wickedness, period. Which means we must prepare for wrath, but pray for mercy. What about our church? What does this mean for our church? What does this mean for the people of God? Well, the comfort we have is that no one who is in Christ will face eternal wrath. We have that assurance. But remember, the prophet Jeremiah, he was righteous in all this, and he got caught up in all of it as well. And like the prophet, we can get caught up in God's temporal wrath against the society, which is why, what do we do? Well, we prepare to suffer faithfully and stand for the truth. We recognize our citizenship is in heaven and God has put us here as emissaries of his kingdom. And say, okay, well, what does this mean for me individually? Well, you as an individual need to remember that this passage is only a preview of what will happen to unrepentant sinners in the final day of the Lord. God still judges societies as a warning and protection against collective sins. And he's put this passage here as a reminder of the ferocity and the inescapable nature of his wrath. You can't escape it. Not on your own. Only through repenting and believing in Christ can you be saved from that final day of the Lord. So what do we do? More than anything else, we keep trusting the Lord and taking comfort in the salvation of that he has provided for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, even as we consider these weighty issues, we are thankful for the grace that we have available to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, even as we see the upheaval in our own society, we see the, all the marks of Lamentations chapter 2 happening in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would help us to suffer faithfully if necessary. And Lord, we do pray for repentance. The only thing that will stave off complete cultural rot, the only thing that will stave off your punishment is mass repentance. So Lord, we pray that you would bring about this awakening and we pray that you would use us as instruments to do so. And even today, we pray that if there are any here who have not put their faith in Christ Jesus to be saved from your wrath, Lord, we pray that you would work in their heart to bring about this salvation. Lord, we thank you again for your grace, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.